John 3.16 is the one you put on the bracelets when we go overseas. John 3.16 is like the money verse for Christianity. <laughs> now, there's a word in there that I think most people don't understand. And it's the word, so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Okay? Take about 30 seconds. What... Tell someone next to you. What do you think the word so means in that sentence? How is it functioning in that sentence? When you say the word, for God so loved the world, what do you mean by the word so? God, like, so much loves the world. That's how we usually see it, right? He's so much, very, very much wrong. How about in this way, God? So Right. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Second question. Is religion a bad word to you? Is the word religion on your bad word list? Okay? If it is, if it is, tell the person next to you why. If it's not, also why. Is religion a dirty word to you? Go ahead. Share. So what I'm going to be doing right now is, is sharing right now clearly through Scripture how it is that Jesus offers you eternal life in heaven and also peace today amidst all of the needs and all of the struggles that you are currently facing. But this has something to do with religion. Now, many people don't have a bad taste in their mouth after they say the word religion, but many people today do. When you say the word religion, um, as I, when I was in my youth and in my college years, I began to also develop some sort of an allergic reaction to the word because it, became, it came to be attached to the idea that um, in many religious circles, there's hypocrisy. In many religious circles, the idea of religion stood for the, the hollow shell around uh, ritual, the hollow shell around uh, repetitious acts that really don't have anything in the middle of it. And we just do it for the sake, at worst, of controlling people. And so religion, for many people, has become this bad word. Did you know that in Scripture there is a man named Nicodemus who is described as a religious man. He, he fits the, all the stereotypes of this word religious. And he comes and he talks to Jesus. And it's this explosive conversation about eternal life and about, about good life and abundant life now and what we do with all of our desires that are not being met and those needs that we so, we so feel inside of us at all times that give us the lack of peace as we live. And as you enter into this narrative, and we will... 
There's one thing about this story with Jesus and Nicodemus, and that's that as you take it seriously, it's going to force you to wrestle with your idea of religion. It's going to force you even to perhaps take, if it is, religion off your bad word list. Okay? So let's, let's begin here. John 3. If you have a phone, you can just, you know, literally Google John 3 and then push probably the very first search you got. And it will open up John 3. We're going to be starting in the beginning, that first verse. John is one of the four books in the Bible called the Gospels. Gospel means Godspell or good news. Not just, uh, it tells the life of Jesus from start until the church is born. So John is one of those four books. And here we are in the third chapter of that book. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was... Religious. Very. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God Unless you are born again. What is Jesus saying there? And Jesus will use kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven interchangeably. Sometimes he'll say kingdom of God. Sometimes he'll say kingdom of heaven. And what he is saying plainly is wake up. Plainly he is trying to be as clear as possible. He's saying wake up because in our current state, he says, without being born again... We cannot see. We cannot find the way. And so we are without the journey, the hope of being with God, and therefore the hope of heaven. Now Jesus is being almost brutally clear, right? It's almost, he's, he's touching that subject that we don't actually want to talk about too much. We don't want to talk about eternal life and heaven and, uh, and the lack of uh, ability to come to heaven. Those, those types of topics are touchy for us. But Jesus thinks they're too important. Think of it this way. God loves you to the extent that it's more important in Jesus' understanding. It's more important that he's frank with you. It's more important that he's frank and he opens up the tough discussion than to sugarcoat everything and walk around the whole discussion. So Jesus says plainly, in your current state, in your current state, there's no connection with God in heaven. You actually have to change your state. You have to be born again. Nicodemus, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but... The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher. You're very religious, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Jesus is speaking of the prophets and the scriptures 
and the testimony of God through time. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you with earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? For no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as Moses, what's he talking about here? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Wait, what? (laughs) Moses, snake, desert. Now, to Nicodemus, those words... Those words recall a story of Israel's past. And when he says those words, Nicodemus would have quickly remembered the story. Now, for many of us, that's not the case. But it needs to be, so let's read this. Okay, this is from Numbers 21. Israel has been in Egypt. Was that a good place for them to be? No, why not? They were slaves. Who wants to be a slave? Raise your hand. Good. God didn't think that was a good idea either. So he sends Moses. What does Moses do? takes them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, he says that he has a promised land waiting for them. Eventually, they'll get there. But right now, we're in the middle. We're in the journey. We're in the crossing of the wilderness between Egypt to the land of Canaan. Okay, in the middle of that journey, here in Numbers 21, we're going to hear, they traveled. They means Moses and the people of God, Moses and Israel. Okay, we clear now? Here we are. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. Again, it's so easy nowadays. You can just Google Numbers 21, 4. Numbers, stat, so space, 21, colon, 4. This will come up. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Eesh, that's literally my worst nightmare. Have you seen the, the Planet Earth uh, the episode with the snakes? Okay, you need to watch that because you'll see why I'm so scared of snakes. Watch the Planet Earth episode of snakes. It'll give you nightmares for at least a week. So the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So the people sinned, okay? And these venomous snakes come and they say, okay, we're sorry. Tell God to take the snakes away. Does God do that? God 
God doesn't take the snakes away. We have to live with that decision. The snakes remain, but one of the earliest Christian leaders, Paul, he wrote that it's been God's plan all along, since the very beginning, to let us have to wrestle with our bad decisions. Kind of like a good parent, right? I have hundreds and thousands of stories to give you from the past six years of my life on why it's good to let your children sometimes learn from their decisions. Now, if it's a really bad one, like they're going to touch the stove, you quickly take their hand away. But sometimes you let them learn so that the next time they have understanding that they didn't have before. So it is with your heavenly father. Eve sees the apple. God says, don't eat it. What does Eve do? Eat the apple. What does Adam do? Eat the apple. What happens? They leave the garden. God has set up very clearly from the very beginning. If you just, if you just follow what I think is best, your life will be best. If you don't, it won't. It's a pretty simple decision for us to make. But you know what? Daily, we bite into that apple. Daily, we make decisions that are against what God would have for us to do. We damage this creation. We do things to hurt other people around us, even the ones we most love. All the time, we're making decisions that instead of bringing life, we make the decisions that will actually lead to the destruction of life, to the breaking down of life, to the deterioration of life and all of God's creation. And when we doubted God's word, when we disobeyed, it has a repercussion. It severs the relationship. When you betray someone, what happens to that relationship that you once thought was strong? When you betray that confidence, what happens to that relationship? It's like that love between one person and another. Think of it as, as like a ligament that's there. But when, but when we strain that relationship, when we show that person that we're not willing to trust them and actually to betray them, that ligament can get stretched even to the point of being severed. Our decisions daily to walk away from what God wants and to love God severed that ligament of love. That ligament of love has been snapped with one bite of the apple for Eve, but each and every day as we bring harm and damage and even destroy life and with one another. Now, our decisions create for ourselves a deep sense of brokenness in this life. We feel the brokenness that we've created in this world. Don't we all have needs? Don't you all have yearnings that you wish you could find and grapple with? Those deepest desires, some of those are, are those needs that, that you hope one day will be fulfilled. Some of those needs you know already you're going to have them for your whole life, and they will never be fulfilled. And some of those deepest desires and yearnings and needs you have already lost. Maybe a loved one. Maybe youth. Maybe a, a, anything that you, you once had that you cherished is now gone. And opportunities slip through your hands. So we now experience this. And God has let us sever the ligament of love between us because... 
If we weren't choosing to be in relationship, how would it ever be a relationship? How is it ever an actual authentic relationship of love if I'm not choosing to be in that relationship? Sure, God could have made us robots. God could have made us follow his every word and made us love him, but is that a true relationship? And so God created us with the ability to love, with the ability to be loved, one another, but also by God and with God. Paul is one of the earliest Christian leaders, and he wrote the following to a church. It was in Rome, but it's to us also. He says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, so most people would say, yeah, I can believe that God exists. They neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. God let them. God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts for the degrading of their bodies, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God lets us do this. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. But, Even though we sever that ligament of love with God, even though we have made the decisions to break off that relationship, okay, what does God do? Does he leave it like that? In fact, it's the opposite. From the beginning of scripture to where we are now, it's one long story of how God is seeking us and trying to restore that relationship with us from the very beginning. It's a promise, actually. Promise when, when Eve initially takes that bite into the apple. The promise is that one day, one of her sons would be the one who destroys evil, would step on evil. Great image. And now he's in the business of reconnecting us, of fixing that ligament, of re-ligamenting us, of religion. The word religion is re-ligo, re-ligament. Re-ligo. Re-ligament. And the whole idea with religion is understanding how we would be reunited with God. That that loving ligament would be restored. And all religions are talking about that, right? They're all, they're all trying to figure out how do we become re-ligamented with God? How do we become reattached? And how is that connection made? And this case, as those snakes are there, God is re-ligamenting his people with a pole and with a snake, this bronze snake that Moses casts and, and puts upon this pole. Now, why in the world would God choose to put a bronze snake on a pole as the way to save the people? Well, walk down that path with me for a moment. If it's on the pole, what does that mean about it, this bronze snake? If, if, if there was a, a big pole here, the broad snake up on top of it, what, what's good about it being on the pole? You know where it is. 
Who knows where it is? We all know where it is. It's public. It's public. It's for everyone. No matter where you're sitting, if it's up on a pole, no matter where you've camped out for the day, if it's up on the pole, you can see it. No matter where you're, if you're from, from Shopram to, to Colin to Jim, all over here to Ramsey, wherever you are, if it's up on that pole, it's public. It's for everybody. This is not some game that God plays with us of how to re-ligament, of how to reunite, reunite that relationship in love with God. This is not some, um, some hidden mystery religion that we have to go through our lives uh, learning about. It's as simple as you get bit by a snake, you look at the snake on the pole right in front of you. It's not difficult. It's the opposite. It's almost as clear as God could make it. Now, I know that we as humans are really good at making really clear things incredibly complicated. Look at the tax code if you ever wonder, right? That thing is thick, right? This is not one of those. A pole. A pole in the camp that was high enough so everybody could just look upon it whenever they get bit by a snake. And why, is, why cast a bronze snake and put it up on the pole? Again, it's obvious. You get bit by a snake. You look at the snake on the pole. One-to-one ratio here, right? The clarity couldn't be simpler. God, God has no desire to try and complicate this. He wants it to be as simple as possible. You get bit by a snake... Obviously, the bronze snake on the pole is where you should look. So it's public and it is clear, explicit. There's nothing hidden and there's nothing secret. You don't have to walk up and, and say some secret word. You just, you literally, you just look at it with your eyes. Last thing here. It all comes down to the willingness to look. That's what saves them, right? If, you're, if I'm sitting here and the snake comes in and it bites me, okay, I can be stubborn and just not look at the pole. Or if I am simply willing to believe that if I look, I'll be saved, this simple willingness, this is it. Just that simple willingness to turn and believe that that is salvation saves that simple willingness to believe that salvation is found on that pole. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God... So loved the world, for God so loved the world, in this way God loves the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Where is Jesus? He's on a pole. The cross with Jesus upon it is now that public, clear, Salvation plan of God that simply requires our willingness to turn and believe it's salvation. 
The religament that God offers to you and to every single person is Jesus on a pole. It is public. Anyone in the world, anyone in the world is offered this plan of salvation. It's for everyone. There's no some secret hidden plan. There's no amount of Bible study courses that you can take to understand this. It's simple. It's clear. If you want to be saved, Jesus says, the only thing is a willingness to believe that salvation is on that cross in the death of Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you're not willing to turn, then when that snake bites you, you die. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done is done in the sight of God. Christ is the explicit public salvation on the pole. But not from a snake bite. Rather, so that we can be born again. So that your current state would be completely changed so that you would know the way, so that you would have the way into the kingdom of heaven. So that you would have your re-ligament with God himself. The moment of the fullness of God hanging in Jesus Christ on the cross. God hanging on a cross. It's like the lightning, the moment of lightning in the history books of humanity. It stands out. The death of God and the death of us at the same time up on the cross. Look upon the snake and you'll be saved. Look upon Jesus on the pole and you will be saved. But lastly, I need to make this even better for you. The promise is that you would have life abundant and that that life would be complete. It would have a shalom. It would have a fullness, a completeness. So once again, consider all of those needs and those yearnings that you're feeling right in this moment. Consider all of the things that you wish were different in your life right now. The things that you're yearning for, that you hope to obtain, the things that you know you'll never obtain, and the things you know that you've already lost. Consider all of that brokenness that you feel right now. What then shall we say in response to these things? Romans 8 reminds us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How will he not graciously give us all things? That's Paul again, writing to the church in Rome, writing to you. How will he not graciously give us all things? When Jesus uses the word life, he means his definition of life. He means God's definition of life. He means the life that he would imagine as being perfect for us. The life we have when we're perfectly following God's word. When love, when sacrificial love is at the foundation of every single moment. 
when we feel that sacrificial love from everybody else and from God at every single moment. That life you already have been given as an inheritance in heaven. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Everything that you want right now, if I asked you to write down a list of everything that you feel like you need, all the brokenness in your life that you feel doesn't make you complete, that's holding you back in life, write that list down. And I could take that and I could say, awesome, everything on this list is already in the heavenly bank account. It's already your inheritance. It's already waiting for you there. Everything you feel you need right now, everything, anything that you feel is broken in your life that you're lacking, you can't write anything down that I wouldn't be able to tell you, okay, you already have it. It's in it is already being guarded for you, as Peter says, as an inheritance. It's like in a heavenly bank account that Jesus has taken out for you, and it is there. Does that make sense? You can tell me nothing right now that you feel like you're lacking. And none, of, none of the needs that you feel that, that, are, that are deep within you, that, that make you yearn and groan and all those, all those hard emotions. There's nothing that won't be fulfilled for you that's not already being guarded for you as an inheritance in heaven. Nothing. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers will be able to separate you from the love of God. As we gather around this table now, we, we do so to remember how Jesus religaments you to himself. It's with his body. And we remember also with the cup of how Jesus religaments us with one another through his blood on the cross. It is public and it is obvious. Upon the cross, Jesus' broken body for our eternal life and the life that Jesus defines in which we have no more, no more brokenness that is already guarded for you as an inheritance. As we move to the table, I know there's many people that are in our community of faith, also people that would be watching online, either live or recorded in the future, that are still on the journey of understanding if they can trust, if they're, if they're willing to turn and be given that inheritance. And so I'm going to be praying now that the Holy Spirit would continue to guide everybody in that position towards a healthy journey of faith and a proper eventual conviction of God's saving. Let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks that your plan for us to be religamented, to be reconnected in love is public it's for everyone, and it's obvious. It's not secret. It's you on the cross. 
for anyone here or watching online or that watching in the future recorded, Lord, I pray that if such a person is trying to unravel how all this works, Lord, I pray that your, your presence, that God, your presence in their heart and mind right now would let them relax and just see your body on a cross. that you look upon that person right now. You look upon them with arms reaching out saying, in this way, I save you, I love you, and I offer you everything that you could desire. It's guarded for you in heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to pray, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe that you have died on the cross for my saving. For giving me a life, the life as you have defined. Lord, I pray this, the deepest authenticity of my thoughts and my hearts, that you are God. That you are my Savior. Lord, I pray also for all of us that have already come to that that decision to look upon your cross. And I pray that as we now approach the table, this would be a moment as as we taste the bread and the cup, that once again this would be a moment where we are filled with the awe, the wonder, and thanksgiving. That simply looking upon you is simply the belief that you died for us. That you, our God, on the cross died for us. That that simple belief gives us our eternal life. Thank you, Jesus Christ, and in your sacrifice. It's in the name we pray. Amen.